Today's sermon text is from 1 Peter 1, 13-16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. First Peter chapter one. If you haven't turned there yet, First Peter chapter one. And we'll go ahead and start with some prayer. Heavenly Father, you have given us the words of life. We are so tempted to turn other ways, God. Our hearts are prone to wander. We want you to constrain us. God, we need you to constrain us. How easy it is for our hearts and our minds and our affections to wander. But God, draw us to you through your word. Let us behold the beauty of your son. Let us be enraptured by the Spirit to delight in Him. Let us be convicted of our sins, of how we so often will be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance while not setting our hope fully upon the grace that will be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You may be thinking that Charles Dickens was writing an introduction to the tale of two cities. but That's not true. He was actually writing a commentary on family vacations, is what he was doing. <laughs> it was, they, are, they are truly the best of times, and they are the worst of times. You have all of the kids in the car... And soon, before you know it, you have this chorus coming out of the back. It's your heart. You think it's an act of rebellion, but it's it's not quite that. But it's just this chorus of you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Just kind of wafting over you. And you open up the windows, but it doesn't quite clear out. It's just lingering there constantly, constantly. You go, no, no. You know, we're only sixteen more hours to go, and we'll be in Tennessee. Just just hang in there, guys. And that's not so much their impatience, but the children, what they, they have then reverberating within them is the core strings of humanity, is that they know that hope can endure all things. They're hopeful to go to grandma's house or aunt's and uncle's place, whatever it might be. And because of that, because of what's before them, they will endure sitting beside their ridiculous brother for hours and hours on end with his 
stream of pirate jokes that just can't turn them off. They just come and come and come. You can endure that because you know what is before you. It's the same thing with Peter. He's constraining the eyes of these believers. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's constraining them to look at what is before them. And in doing so, he's able to bring them to endure what they are currently going through. So my main idea here is, it's, it's just drawn right out of the text, is to... Hope in grace and, and hope in Christ. And I mean, you might be thinking to yourself, really? You, know, you, had, you had all week and that's what you came in. You came up hope in Christ. You need to kind of just put those together. No, 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 I know. I understand. I'm that guy. That's how I think too. I understand. It's not overly profound, right? But the substance of it, the substance of it. Is what can make you endure and go through anything that might be before you. So we're going to be looking at here in verse 13. We're going to be looking at this future grace. I thought I had grace already. Do I not have it? What, what, what's going on here? This future grace. And then in verses 14, 15, and 16, what we're going to be looking at is when we have this future grace, how does that impact our lives in the moment? And he's calling us to present holiness. Set your hope in Christ. Hope in Christ. You see this future grace and then present holiness. So let's, let's go to the text here. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can't get past the first word. You, you just can't. It's therefore, so it's an application of what has gone before it. I'm your dad, truth statement, therefore, clean your room. When you're reading the text, this is how it works. Truth, therefore, application. It's the reverse of because or for. There you have an application, clean your room, because or for, truth statement, I'm your dad. In our text, it's this way. Truth statement. Therefore, now what do we do with this? So let, let's look. It only makes sense to go back up. Sean read it, a great portion of it already. But just to rehearse of what's going on here with these believers here. In verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us. We didn't do it. He has caused us. To be born again to a living hope through, how did he do it? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you were dead, but now you were alive. And you were being born into this living hope. And how does all of this happen? Well, it happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's, it's through His resurrection that you've been pulled out of death and then now brought into, into life. In verse 4, resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. See here, Peter's already giving a little foreshadow. Brothers, sisters, look forward. Look forward to this glorious inheritance that is before you. Verse 5, who, by God's power, 
are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this, in this salvation, in this present hope that we have for this future glory, in this you rejoice. Though, concession, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Brothers and sisters, the sufferings of the early church are not um, an anomaly to the Christian life, but rather they're a foreshadow of what is to come for all of us and how we will be treated in this present world. And one of the great pitfalls that we jump into in our faith is to think that in the midst of our sufferings that we are the only ones who are suffering. In reality... Suffering is, is, is a means of God's grace to us. In which we are able to join in the common lot of God's people who are suffering and also being carried along. So one of the great things that God uses then for his people to draw together is this suffering. And one of Satan's greatest lies then is that we begin to think that we're the only ones who are suffering. And so the temptation is to then withdraw into isolation. They don't know what it's like to be single, to, to go home day after day to an empty house. Nobody knows, nobody can fathom the abuse I went through. When you get married, you're no longer single, but now you're married, but God has closed your womb. And you begin to think you're the only one. God, I am the only one who knows this grief. And Satan will use that to tempt you, to draw you into isolation. Or you're married and you have kids, and you still feel alone. Or your health your youth is far behind you and you're tempted to think that no one else knows what it is like to live your life waiting and waiting and waiting for the next test result. Don't buy into these lies of Satan. So it complicates it though also with this suffering is the bit of shame we think is coming with it. So you suffer with loneliness, but there's a bit of shame, you think. It's not there, but you think it's there. Well, I'm suffering in loneliness. Why? Because I can't find anybody. Therefore, I feel this shame. Or I was suffering because of this abuse. And why? Because I couldn't stand up for myself. And to be honest, nobody else cared to. And so you have this sense of shame. Or my body is fighting this cancer. And you have this... Uh, sense of shame because you're thinking, well, my body isn't strong enough to fight it off. So in the midst of our suffering, if we buy into these lies, Satan is going to draw you into isolation and draw you into this, this posture of shame as well. And suffering, it will manifest itself. It will show itself differently in all of our lives, naturally, as you think it would. But don't ever think. These are the lies of Satan. Don't ever think that you are the only one. Don't believe them to draw into isolation or to think that you should somehow be ashamed of what's been happening to you. But when in the midst of our own sufferings, think of others. 
and rejoice with them. It's, it's the grace of God that He's allowing us to, to suffer. And through this, we, we shouldn't be relying, we shouldn't be believing these lies that we're the only ones, or that we should be shameful, but rather we should be opening up with our suffering and allowing other people to come in because they're suffering as well. Go back to what's going on in these verses prior to verse 8. Here it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this here is when your faith becomes real. When you don't see Christ, but His sweetness is more real to you than anything around you that you see. And so, Peter is saying, and now we get to our text here, he's saying, because all of this is true, therefore, because you were dead, but now you're alive, because you have this living hope, because you have an inheritance that is waiting for you, because you will obtain this, even though you're refined now by fire, because all of this is true, therefore, how now shall we live? The main thing here is, is to set your hope fully upon the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But you'll notice what, what Peter does is he gives these little clues as to the posture of our heart. How should they be when I set my hope fully upon the grace that will be revealed to us or brought to us? What's the posture of my heart? Well, number one is preparing your mind for actions. Literally, it's girding up the loins of your mind. The traveler, the runner, the warrior, the laborer, they would all gather up their garments in the ancient Near East uh, to be prepared. So they could go about their task without any hindrance whatsoever. And so you see here how Peter is portraying the Christian life. In the ancient Near East, it wouldn't be common that you would have your loins or all these, you know, your tunic, whatever, and be pulled up and ready. No, you would you'd wear it down. But Peter is showing you a Christian life that's not like that. It's active. It's prepared. It has a posture of being ready. You're ready to go at a moment's notice. You're quick to forgive. You're ready for action. You're dashing to the door to open it up when someone stops by. You are prepared. But it's not only that, but it's also you're, you're going to be sober-minded as well here. And you'll see that sobriety and wakefulness are often combined. So to be judicious. So Peter's saying, you, you, he's Peter, right? You can be a zealot. Yes. Be wise about it. Be prepared for action. Be judicious in what you act upon. So what we don't want to do when we're reading the text here is to think that there are three different points. It's not point one, prepare your minds for action. Point two, be sober-minded. Point three, set your hope. No, these first two are subservient to this main idea that Peter's been getting at you and kind of building up to. And how these Christians, who in the midst of their persecution, what, what, what salve, what balm do you have for my soul, Peter? Set your hope fully upon 
the hope that will be brought to you. And what he's not telling them, interesting what he's not telling them. Do you notice this? Not telling them overthrow the government, pull up arms. Sorry to some of you, many of you in here. He's not tempting them towards that. He's not saying, no, donate to this political action committee and then you'll be able to do it. Or, you know, get in the lower parts of government and then you can rise up to the higher. No, it's not that. He's not here to change the world. He's ministering to their hearts in the midst of their persecution and saying, look to this grace that will be brought to you. It's amazing. And how we will often think of hope is that it's this object. It's something we have or that we'll possess it. And we, we, so we say things like, I see you're going through this. I, I hope you have hope in the midst of this. Though it's, it's something you can hold or it's, a, it's an attribute that you might have. What here, what Peter is, it's, it's a verb. It's, it's this action that they are doing with their mind and with their heart. So we don't have quite have it, so we have add the word set. But it's it's just no hope with all that you are, with all of your heart, with all of your mind. Hope. Do it. Be active in that is what you are to be doing. Okay. So I will set my hope. But how much do you want of it? Well, Peter he says, I set your hope fully. All of it. What have you taught me this week that we like to diversify our portfolio of hope? We like to have a career. That would be good. Family. That would be good. A husband and wife. A home and kids. And the reason we want this is to kind of safeguard ourselves. In case of the career, I hit this dead end. Well, I still got a nice family. You know? Or in the case of the marriage is a little rocky. At least I have loving kids. And we like to think that we can have then this safeguarded measure in our hope and in our affections and what we pour ourselves into. But what Peter is constraining them to see is, no, set your hope fully upon this grace. A little bit? No. All of it. All of it. That is the only surefire way that you will not be disappointed is to be looking to this grace. So we set our hope, this active, this verb, this action that we are doing, all of it. Not a little bit, but all of it. In the midst of persecution, yes. Even in the most trying time. Even much more in the most trying of times. And then we set it upon this grace. The Christian heart is earnestly seeking this grace. And yes, we have it already. We have a sufficient Amount, but we're never quite fully satisfied as a Christian, right? You want more grace and more grace. When we lived in Hawaii, we were on the, the big island on the dry side, and it would rain occasionally, but when it rained, it would downpour. So you'd be on the beach and enjoying yourself, and then you look up and you go, oh, and you hear this little blink, blink, blink. Just little bits of rain. But you knew before you, in a moment's notice, you just this deluge, this storm is going to be rolling through and just sheets of rain are going to be washing over you and you're going to be soaked. This is what it looks like, the grace of God in your life. Just little blink, blink, blink. 
Just little bits of grace. Enough to sustain you, yes. Enough to, to transform you and conform you into the image of Christ from one degree to the glory to the next. Absolutely, it's enough. But brothers and sisters, there's so much more coming. Alexander McLaren, he's my my favorite, um, how does he say this? Favorite Scottish preacher uh, who's a particular Baptist within the 19th century, right? They, they can't all be your favorite, but he is, within those guards, he is by far my favorite. Uh, he, he says, it, he puts it this way. That grace that saved you at first, the grace that comes to us filtered in drops during our earthly experience is poured out on us in a flood at last. And this grace of God will be brought to you beyond measure in eternity. Eternity will not be enough to exhaust this grace of God. So Peter's changing our orientation, changing our perspective. When we're suffering, it's, it becomes really difficult to look past the instance of the suffering itself. Either we, we have mental images or smells or whatever it might be that evoke these emotions back to us. And we, we think about those particular instances. I remember where I was. I remember how it happened. I remember what we ate. All of those various things. And we have a hard time getting past the suffering. Or as we talked about earlier, we just have a hard time getting past ourselves in the midst of suffering. We think of our own, um, our own hardships. And the fruit of this, when we think about the actual instance of the suffering, or we think about ourselves, is that we become reluctant to become vulnerable. We get stuck looking to ourselves or stumbling upon the instance upon, of our suffering. But you have to see that it isn't just suffering. What's happening in suffering, it's not just the suffering. What's happening in suffering is a battle for your soul. And as this is happening, you have to ask yourself, where am I going to look? Where are my affections going to be pointed? The world is going to train you to look to yourself. That's the new hero, is the victim. Peter, through the Holy Spirit, is imploring you, look to Christ in His coming. Look to this grace that will be beyond measure, that will be brought to you. So what shall consume you? The thoughts of hardship or the glory of our coming Christ? Paul writes it this way, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Suffering doesn't seem so bad now. It seems quite palatable. I can handle that. Or to him... Who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom, priests of his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, Revelation chapter 1. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. 
And every eye will see him and those whom pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. And finally, and when he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. What great words for the people of God who have endured as we are now east of Eden. We've endured so much. You have endured so much. God has carried his people through all of this. Not by fixing the world around them. If that happens, amazing. Should we endeavor in it? Yes. But we should be having our eyes not fixed to this world, but rather set fully upon Christ and His grace. What, what, what sweet words. And He said to me, it is done. And let, lest you think this is a fatalist. No, this is how you have joy. You want true joy. This is how you do it. You realize God will come and he will, he will reign this truth over me. It is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end to the Thursday I will give from the spring of the water of life without repayment. So know this. When your womb is closed or with your suffering with cancer, Christ is coming. And these little blink, 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 these little drops of grace that are enough, more than enough now, will soon be turned into an imaginable, unimaginable flood of God's love when Christ comes. Okay, so through all of this, we're going to keep our hope set firmly upon this grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. But sounds great, Peter. How do I live right now, though? What does this look like for my life? Okay, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, so you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, Peter is keeping up this play here. As we keep our eyes forward, what he's saying is don't look back. Don't look back. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And you might look back on those seasons of your life and you think it was just careless joy. Oh, it was that little season. I knew it would come to an end eventually. What does Peter say? No, it was ignorance. You're an idiot. I was an ignorant. I was an idiot. A lot. For, for a long time. Some of you, that's, that's where you're in right now. That's the state of life you're in now. And you think, oh, it's just, it's just fun. I'll indulge myself. No, you're walking in ignorance. That's the reality. And you might not see it, but that doesn't change the reality of what it really is. 
So yes, they're in your past, but don't go back to them. Peter's warning them, don't go back to them. I know it's I know it's hard and there's a lot of suffering, but you just you just want a little indulgence, just a little re, a little relief. Don't do it. Don't do it. You'll be conformed to it. It'll press you in, and you will look like this rather than the God to whom you are looking. But what do we do? Be holy. You notice it. It's rooted in the na- the nature of God. This unchanging nature of God. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Every aspect of your life, all of it is put in complete surrender and submission to God because of who he is. And when we think of holiness, what we often think of is, is to be separated, right? To be separated. And we think that it's either the kind of this, this idea of moral purity or transcendence of God. Uh, but it, it doesn't quite capture how Scripture is showing it. A little Hebrew excursion, several minute, minute. I'll, I'll, I'll do it in a minute, and I'll come back and show you why it actually matters. Stick with me. Wolf Wilhelm Friedrich von Bodesen. Don't tell me he's not German, right? Published something in 1878, which, and he's contending that this, this idea of holiness is to cut, right? Holiness is to cut. And some, sometimes it's true, but it's, it's, it's like a minor key you're playing. It's not the full of the melody. And so over the last 150 years, especially in evangelicalism, we've imported his teachings and writings into this idea of holiness. And so what we left thinking is to holiness is to be separated from. I'm going to be holy because I'm not going to be like the world. I'm going to be holy over here. What are you going to be like? I don't know. I'm just not going to be like those guys. Actually, when you look at the text over 300 times, this this root word throughout the Old Testament, you'll see something entirely different. Holiness doesn't quite mean separated or cut from. Rather, it means consecrated or devoted. Go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. You see that the seventh day is, is holy. God regards it as holy. He tells Adam and Eve, it is holy. Why is it holy? Well, it's not holy because it's separated from the first six days. That's not it. No, it's holy in that it's set apart. It's consecrated. It's devoted entirely to God. Isaiah 6, you go into the throne room of God with the seraphim are flying Covering their faces, covering their feet, and flying in the midst in the glory of God, which is Christ. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. This triplet in Hebrew is just a way to just really blow it up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. No, what, what they're not saying is that God is separate from evil. That, that's not what they're saying. I mean, think about it. If that was true, then he couldn't have been holy before creation. He's not entirely, he's not this, uh, you know, uh, entirely, infinitively cut up and separated God. That's not who he is. But no, what they're proclaiming is that here is this holy God who's entirely consecrated and devoted unto himself and unto his own glory. And the stage of holiness then 
is actually the place, not of separation, but the stage of holiness, is a place where God and man come together. God is drawing in Isaiah into his throne room of God and revealing his holiness to him. Think of also in um, Exodus 3, you have the burning bush. Or Exodus 19, you have Mount Sinai in this holy mountain that is trembling. And they couldn't approach the mountain because it was holy. It's not that it was forbidden. It's not that they were to be separated from it. But rather it was consecrated to God. And again, it was a place where God and man dwelled together and met together. So what does this mean? Why do you care about that? Think of holiness and you want to have a life of holiness. You're tempted to think, I just want to abstain from certain things. And thus, and therefore, I will be holy. It's like telling yourself, if I don't eat this food, then I'll be healthy. No, that's not true. It's by eating good food that makes you healthy. And the same thing with God and His holiness. Rather, if you want a life of holiness, consecrate yourself to God. Devote yourself entirely to Him. So it's not so much about staying away from the world. That's not our posture as we live in this present age, in the midst of persecution, as we're setting our eyes fully upon this grace that we brought to us. No, we are consecrating and devoting ourselves entirely to God. That is the life of holiness. So what does this look like? If this is true, not what do we do, but what does it look like when the Spirit of Christ works this through our hearts? One, you'll be able to see the world for what it truly is. It's temporal. And it cannot be an anchor to your soul. It'll call to you like a siren. Call to you day after day. But it won't satisfy you. You can't, you can't tie this, this ship of your life to this and be anchored away into the world. No, you can't. And to be honest, if you are entirely satisfied, if that is sufficient for you, you have a shell of life. You really do. If you wrestle with the things of eternity, you will see this world for what it truly is. Is it good? Yes, God made it. But it is not yet our home and it is not yet the place where God himself will dwell with man. So one, the Spirit of God works this through us. You'll see the world for what it truly is. Number two, you will see that suffering, it doesn't go away. Suffering finds its proper place. It can consume your life. It can consume your life because it's entirely devoted and consecrated to God as you have set your eyes upon Him, awaiting this grace that you have a little bit now, but you're going to get an immeasurable flood of God's love to you later. Suffering then finds its true place. It can't conquer you. It simply can't. Is it real? Yes. Do we go through it? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it finds its 
proper place, which is subservient, always subservient to the grace of God. And that is true because Christ has suffered for us. That is why suffering is able to be put in the proper place. It's because it's been conquered. It's been put aside because of Christ and through Christ and what he has done. Okay, so you're going to see the world for what it is. You're going to see suffering and how it relates to you that it's not the all of who you are, but rather it finds its place. And finally, you'll see that you actually begin to live out this future grace as you fix your eyes upon it, meditate upon it, plea with God that he would give it to you now. You're going to find yourself actually living out that future grace in your present life. Which is why Peter calls it, be holy. The grace of heaven that seems so seemingly distant will begin to enliven your hearts as you live out this future glory within this world. Brothers and sisters, there is immeasurable suffering, not just in the world, but within this room. Don't be tempted to fix your eyes upon that. Don't be tempted to go back and get a little relief, just a little bit, into the things of your former life, but rather fix your eyes fully upon this grace of God, this immeasurable love of God, that will be enough to sustain you throughout all of eternity that you have now. Brothers and sisters, fix your eyes upon this and this alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we need you. <laughs> we, we can't do this. We can't do this. Our own sin is enough to cause difficulties in our life, not alone, uh, let alone the sin of others pressing in upon us as well. God, we cannot do this. We need your grace. We need you to captivate us in a way that we can't take our eyes off of you, even if we tried, God. Our hearts are so prone to wander. God, constrain us to yourself by revealing your beauty to us. God, let us see the beauty of your Son as we come and partake of communion. Let us rejoice that as we have this future grace with us now, so with Christ, we have this spiritual presence of Christ with us in a rich way when we come and partake of communion. God, enrapture our hearts and minds to delight in you. Amen. Amen.